We're in a series called Necessary Hardship. We're looking at the first 80 years of Moses' life and how Moses was an incredibly gifted individual. He was used by God in unbelievable ways in one of the pinnacle stories of our Old Testament. Very profound story of the Exodus where it takes millions of people out of slavery and freedom. Phenomenal story of redemption and hope and life. But Moses, his first 80 years uh, were not an easy time. He was... um, really wrestled with some things. So we're talking, and one of the things we're talking about was we have Verve right in, uh, coming up in a week. We've been talking this, just a, a short series on hardship and how hardship is really, if I want to be used by God, if I truly want God to work in my life and be used to make a difference, hardship is a key part of it. The verse that we're kind of looking at to the kind of overarch this whole series is this one, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. As I mentioned last week, this is written by a guy who knew something about hardship. This is written by a guy who was known as the weeping prophet. He stepped out in obedience to God and faced nothing but failure as we think of failure. Then people didn't follow. They didn't turn around. He didn't see radical life change in, in the people's hearts. But he continued to stay faithful. He wept and cried and was beat. Um, But he stands up and God finally says, I got a plan for you. So that's what we've been talking about in this series is the plan that God has for us. And God's plan for us is to prosper us, not to harm us. This morning, I'll be very honest. This morning is a weighty, weighty message. Uh, It has hope, but it's also very, very weighty because we're going to talk about the value of children. And we're going to talk about not only children, but we're going to talk about abuse and neglect. Moses, and we're going to talk about here in a minute, Moses was raised in a time where there was slavery and abuse of people that is unfathomable to me. But yet he was raised in that time by a parent who looked into his little heart and said, we believe in you. We believe God has a plan for you. In the midst of horrendous hardship comes this birth of a child. And when Moses is is raised, it says he was no ordinary child. We're going to talk about this morning is the reality that, you know what? There's really no ordinary people. Not one of us in this room is ordinary. And that was said of Moses. We're going to look at a few minutes. That was said of Moses, but it can be said of every single one of us sitting here. So we're going to talk about is childhood, how important it is to care for kids and how devastating it is to be abused and neglected and abandoned. It is pain unfathomable. Matter of fact, I'll be honest, I I've, I've, uh, would rather almost, for me personally, for me personally, I would rather have the doctor say, Adam, you have cancer and you're going to die in less than six months than to live with someone who should love me and care for me as instead beating on me and doing unspeakable things to me as another human being. It's brutal. And it's hardship and pain at its finest and the most difficult to wrestle with and deal with. So we're going to talk about that. Before that, I want to kind of set the context for why this is so passionate and close to my heart. I want to kind of tell the story. When I was in central Pennsylvania, I worked there in youth student ministries there for four years in a church in Mifflin County, about half an hour from my favorite football team, Penn State, uh, right over the mountain from State College. And while I was there, we had, and I just want to tell you about a couple, about a couple of the kids. And these were kids that, that came and we were there every single week, just about. And we cared for these kids on a regular basis. I just want to tell you their story as we kind of get into this. First one is, I'm not going to give their names. The first one was a young girl. She was a young girl with red hair, fair complected, had a learning disability, had a hard time speaking. But what we found often is she was made fun of on a consistent and regular basis because of her disabilities. Two other girls uh, were twins, beautiful, beautiful young girls in high school. Their dad abused them in unspeakable ways. Their mom then abandoned them because of her use of drugs. She was unfit to raise them. So they ultimately ended up living with their aunt in Mifflin County. That's how they ended up in Mifflin County. They were hospitalized at times because of attempts at suicide and anorexic tendencies. They ran away from home repeatedly. But a lot of it stemmed from the abuse of a father. I think of two other girls, they were sisters. Their mom called them horrendous, horrible names. Things that I cannot, I can't repeat uh, publicly here. They were, they were raised in a home, a toxic environment, but yet the one was incredibly overweight. 
and she struggled with it. And her mom would say things to her about it. Her self-image was horrendous, just in the toilet. But again, they came regularly, and we watched. the another, another young man came. We met him. He's in foster care. He's actually in high school, but he couldn't speak any better than my, than my two-year-old daughter. He struggled that much with communication because of the horrendous abuse and neglect that he suffered in the early parts of his life. So much so that I only caught bits and pieces from his foster parents. So much so that he had, we hardly even knew what happened to him because he could not communicate. We had another um, individual, a, a young girl. She was a sophomore when we met her, whose mom was an alcoholic. Another one, a young man who his mom abandoned the family with another man to Utah. His older sister was arrested for drugs. His twin sister had all kinds of drug and related issues. And his dad had kind of checked out and left him and his twin sister to raise themselves. I think of another one whose mom died from cancer. And probably the one that I think captured my heart the most was a young man who's lived with his grandparents because his mom, in essence, wanted nothing to do with him. And though he's living with his grandparents, all of his brothers were also living with his grandparents. And repeatedly, as he was in my small group that I worked with, repeatedly, as he lived with his grandparents, his brothers were there too, he would be in knife fights with his brothers, fighting for his life because of the animosity that existed between he and his brothers. He'd sleep with a knife in his bed because of fear of what they might do to him. He was abused and neglected. He didn't even know his father. The crazy thing was, is when I went over to see him at times, I'd drive down this long gravel lane. And when I get to the house where his grandparents lived, where he lived, right across was kind of a run down down home where his mom lived, his biological mother. Yet he knew nothing about her. He suffered horrendous hardship. He'd come, he'd come, he wouldn't smell good a lot. He didn't have great hygiene. He was made fun of a lot. But then when times really got tough, one of his best friends died. A month later, his house that he lived in burnt down. As I think about these stories, as I think about the hardship of these young people that we worked with and we poured ourselves into, one of the things that broke my heart as I watched him is the pain at times is hard to bear. And what's even harder is watching the result. And what you see often is young people who suffer, who suffer great. They make poor decisions. They resort to drugs, to sex, to all kinds of stuff because what they're really doing is I want to know that I'm loved, that I'm valued, that someone is fond of me. And because of this pain, they then make very poor choices and heap even more pain into their lives. And we'd walk with these young people and my heart would bleed. One of my favorite things to do with them. This is my favorite thing that I'd like to do with you. Turn with me to Psalm 139. You're going to find Psalm, if you're not familiar with your Bible, the book of Psalms. Is it right in the middle? You can kind of see mine there. It is almost dead center, middle of your Bible, Psalm 139. If you find the book of Psalms, find the singular Psalm, Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite things to do with young people that suffered great. Our whole ministry was centered around these kind of kids. And I'd open my Bible up on a regular basis and I would, I mean, probably monthly, I would resort to this psalm or something close to it. And I'd read this. I'd read it like this. It says, O Lord, verse 1, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Verse eight, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And I look at him and I'd say, guys, girls, You cannot hide from this magnificent, radiant God. He is always with you. You are always in his presence. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, he is there with you. Take comfort in that. Then I'd read these verses as verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. This God radiates. He's beautiful. Verse 13. This is why I would just, I would come in here. I'd love to look at him in the eye and I'd read. 
For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I look at him and I'd say, you are precious. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single one of you, no matter what the adults in your life have told you, you are precious. That mother that you don't know, that father that has abused you, I would look at him and say, guess what? Before they even knew who you were, God knew you. And God had a plan for you. And no matter what others are telling you, you are beautiful. You're a creature created in his image. I'd say, hold on to that hope. Hold on to that magnificent, radiant truth of this God who loves you and is for you and has made you wonderfully. See, one of the things I believe, we're going to look at this today. This phrase comes up about Moses. It says, Moses was no ordinary child. And I think the message that I'd love to impart is that there are really no ordinary people. Not one of you is ordinary. This truth probably is so, I'm so passionate about this because I was the individual who abused with my tongue. Never forget, I went to a private school. I got spanked in seventh grade by the principal because I beat a kid up. He wrote on my Dan Marino jersey. I know, a horrible sin. With a black marker, he went right down, traced a line in the one. He sat in the desk behind me. So the next class came. I said, okay, guys, I got my friends around. I hung at the door. I said, I'm going to watch for the teacher. I want you to take this kid out. And we pounded on him to the point where he couldn't return to school because he had physical damage. Never forget when I got married with my wife, to my wife. After about a year of marriage, we moved to Lidditz, Pennsylvania to finish my education. From, we came from upstate New York and we got all these boxes and things were moving around. And, you know, we have these blessed things called yearbooks. Oh, yearbooks. My wife finds them. She's never really looked at my yearbook. So I have my senior year yearbook and she's paging through and we're laughing and making fun. And I'm like, wow, look at that. Oh my goodness. And all the notes that are written and some scary things and some inappropriate things. And finally she gets to this one and this guy named Dave and she starts reading it. I'll never forget it. We're sitting there in that living room and she starts reading this and I just went pale because I forgot about this. Dave was, had the last name with an N, so he was in my homeroom for all four years of public high school. Sat beside me in all four years of public high school, I made fun of this kid. And in my senior yearbook, he writes, Adam, I bet you thought it was really funny when you would call me Dave, and then I had a pun of his last name, and I called him all the time. But it wasn't, he says. Now, why that hit my heart was because Dave, two years out of high school, committed suicide. And here I am now, a passionate Christ follower, saying, I'm going to get this life turned around. And when she's reading this, it just hits me. Oh, my word. Look what you did with your mouth. Look at the life that you could have spared and saved and you instead turned and destroyed. Suffering from another human being is miserable and hard to deal with. So this morning, I want to talk to those in this room who have suffered and maybe are suffering. My hope is this morning, you walk out of here with hope and a plan to do something. I also want to talk to those of us who abuse. In a room this size, I'm not foolish enough to think there's not one or two, three, four or more of you in this room who are abusing your spouse or your child. And my prayer is if that is, hopefully it's a very small number. My prayer is that you walk out of here understanding the wrath of God that is in store for you. And for the rest of us, my hope and prayer as a church, my prayer for us this morning is that all of us get in this battle and that we stand up and that we fight for those that are abused and neglected in life and that we never, ever allow from our mouth to spew venom towards another human being or or our hands to be used against another person. If you turn with me to Exodus, the story of Moses, Exodus chapter one, 
Exodus chapter 1. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're going to find Exodus right at the very beginning of your Bible. Just go to your first book and flip past it, and you're going to find Exodus chapter 1. Now, before we get to Moses' birth, I think it's important for you to understand the context and the world in which Moses lived and was born into. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now, Joseph, this is important. Joseph was a man who was sold into slavery down to Egypt. He was a man, the coat of many colors. Some of you know his story. He was hated by his brothers because of, he was a little bit of a, (laughs) he had some issues himself and was very proud and told some dreams and some stories and his brothers to get rid of this guy. So they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Well, he rises to power in Egypt and then there's a famine in his land. So his whole family comes down to live with him when they find out that he's there to just to be able to live and survive. Well, so therefore all the Hebrew people kind of now end up in Egypt. Now, Joseph was well known and he was in power, but he's now passed away. He's dead. And now a king comes into power who does not know Joseph. So it says, Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. I want to say something here. I want to value leadership. One of my passions and values in life is leadership, good leadership. Because what I have observed in my short life so far, poor leadership always hurts people. Whether it's a business that you run and you're a schlep of a boss or whether it's a a husband in the home who's the leader and you're a loser of a husband or you just make dumb decisions, whatever the context is, poor leadership always hurts people. And this guy is a horrible leader. He thinks, well, maybe if we treat them harshly, maybe we'll control them. Never works. But he, so this is what he does. He cooks up this plan. Is let's, let's enslave these people. So verse 11, so they, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Now, this is cool. I think some of this is, very honestly, when you live, when you, when you live a life of utter poverty and oppression... We in our hearts desire pleasure and joy, right? So they have no pleasure and joy in their life. So guess what happens when they get home? They want pleasure and joy. So what do they do? They enjoy the fruits of marriage. I won't say any more. We have little ears in here. They had fun though. And they multiply. They have lots of babies. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. This is slavery and brutality at its finest. It's ugly. It's gruesome. It's, it's abuse of one human to another. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. Now think about this. You're a midwife. And you are now told that if a baby boy is born, you are to kill this child. They're given a direct commandment directly from the king of Egypt himself, from Pharaoh. But he says, if it's a girl, let her live. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. So they say, you know what? Forget this guy. We are not going to kill another human life. I'm I'm not going down that road. So they let the boys live. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them directly, point blank, why have you done this? Have you, why have you let the boys live? Now the midwives tell a flat out lie. I love this. <laughs> they tell a lie, but they're blessed and honored for it. God rewards them for their faith. But it's a flat-out lie to save their own hide, is what I believe what they're doing. But verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So basically they say, you know what? Man, these women are so healthy and so strong. This baby is out and over in no time. and we get there, it's already done. We don't even, we don't, we're hardly even involved with these births. Verse 20, so God was kind in, to the midwives and the people in Excuse me. And the people increased and became even more numerous. 
So the Pharaoh's evil cooked up scheme doesn't work. So he says, well, I've got to go to, we've got to figure something else out. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, God gave them families of their own. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people. So he says, you know what? The midwives don't obey. Maybe my people, maybe the Egyptians will. So I'm going to tell all the people, if you see a baby boy, here, look at the end of the verse. Every boy that is born, you must throw it into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, this is the world in which Moses is about to be born. It is a world of brutal treatment towards children, towards a certain ethnic race, the Hebrews. Slavery at its finest. Not too far off from what our own country knew 150 years back. Now, chapter 2 comes along then. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now look at this next phrase. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she saw that he was a fine child. Some of you in your translations might actually have when, they, when she saw that he was a beautiful child. So in some capacity, they look down at this child and say, this child is beautiful, this child is fine. Acts chapter 7, we looked at it last week. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, says he was no ordinary child. Hebrews chapter 11, it says the same thing. He was no ordinary child. But you know what the reality is? I don't think it has anything to do with the child. I don't think it has a thing to do with Moses. I think that he had no ordinary parents. I want you to think about this. They were given no divine revelation on Moses' life. Think throughout the pages of scripture. You have Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were told by God, even though you are old, you are going to have children and your children are going to bless the earth. You're going to be, you're going to have so many descendants that you look up at the stars, impossible to count them. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. God tells them, gives them a direct revelation. I think of Samson's parents, you know, Samson, who, who the big, strong guy who couldn't cut his hair. What did his parents, they got a divine revelation. They were told directly by God, you are going to have a child and he is going to free your people from the Philistines. And here's how I want you to raise this child. I think of Hannah in the old Testament who cried and wept for a child, pled for a child. And God was, gave her a direct revelation. You were going to have a child. And she says, when I do, I will turn him back over to service for you, God. And she does that with Samuel. I think of you going to the new Testament. You think of Zechariah who had birthed John the Baptist was given a direct and divine revelation by God. You are going to have a boy in your old age. Who's going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now, he, he, he's like, no way. And so God strikes him deaf and mute, or I'm sorry, unable to speak. Then I think of Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. She was given a divine and direct revelation. You are going to birth the Messiah, impregnated in you by the Holy Spirit. Moses' parents were giving no such revelation, but yet they look at this child and they say, oh my goodness, he is fine, he is beautiful, this is no ordinary child, and they set him apart unto God. These are cool parents. They do this in faith without any kind of direct statement from God. I think about this, I think about children, I think about when my son Luke was born. I'll be very honest, I'll confess. As a pastor, I do not think newborn babies are cute. I've never met a cute newborn baby. I mean, look at them. They come out with all this stuff on them, this white gooey substance all over them. Their skin is this funny reddish color and sometimes pale and blue and strange. And then their heads from the birth is sometimes oddly shaped and their noses are crooked and smashed and they cry and they scream. And they, and I'll tell you what, at times I've come up to see a newborn baby and I, I come to see him and I, I look down and I think, oh, wow, he is so, he is so, what is he? I think when, when I hear people say, that baby is so cute. Oh, it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. I think, are you lying? Look at this newborn baby. But in some way, this baby is born, and I can relate to some degree. I think it's the natural response of a parent. When Luke was born the very first time, and he comes out, and there he is covered with all his stuff, and he's screaming and crying, and, and it's a mess everywhere, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And the midwife, or the midwife and the nurse says, it's a boy. And Tanya looks back at me and says, sweetie, we have a boy. We didn't know what we were having. He 
Luke didn't cooperate with the ultrasound, so he always turned himself around. I remember getting teary-eyed. I remember holding this messy baby and pulling him close to me. And I looked down and said, it's a fine baby. What changed? It's the heart of a father for a child. It's natural to some degree. Which is why when it breaks down and there's abuse from that position of authority of a parent, it's ugly and it's gruesome. It is vulgar and disgusting because it's not the natural response that God births in the heart of a parent. But Moses had no ordinary parents. The cool thing is Moses, we talked about this last week, he's raised in the Hebrew culture and scriptures. Parents, can I talk to you a minute? Your kids are never too young to have the word of God instilled in their heart. Value kids. Moses was only with his Hebrew parents until probably somewhere between at the earliest age three, at the latest age six, according to Hebrews chapter 11. That's it. So from that point forward till he's 40 years old, he does not have Hebrew training about the massive, beautiful, wonderful creator God of the universe. But at age 40, he still has enough foundation from his early childhood years to stand up and say, this oppression of these people has got to stop because I am going to choose to serve the God of heaven, not this Pharaoh. But all he had were these parents that said, we love this child. We value this child. This is no ordinary child. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. And they put into him and his life. They realize, you know what? All life is precious and it is a gift. And for us to destroy it is, is unthinkable. One of the things I've learned with um, successful people. I've looked at successful people and I've, I've watched them and read about them and studied them. It's, it's an intriguing study of mine. And oftentimes when you look at successful people, I always like to go back to their home in which they were raised. And I've found successful people tend to run along one of two tracks. Either they came from a home where they were so loved and adored and cherished and they knew that my mom and dad are proud of me, that they stepped out with great risk and great adventure because I cannot fail because what I have standing behind me in support propels me forward. Or I've seen, and they step out in a very healthy way and they become very successful. Or I've seen the flip where people are successful because it's a reaction against a horrible home where they found that they never knew they were loved. They were never quite sure dad was proud of them. So they worked their tail off just to hear, you're okay. I think of David Robinson and Michael Jordan a few years ago. They're inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. You can go home and YouTube this, watch their speeches uncanning the difference and distinction on the exact same stage on the exact same night. Michael Jordan stands up, one of the greatest basketball players of, if not the greatest of all time. He stands on his stage and all as he talked about for almost 20 solid minutes was why he became successful. And all as it was, was I was set out to prove my parents and everyone else wrong in life that I am someone because he never had it instilled in his heart. He talked about what it was like in high school, what it was like in college, and how he was looking back at every one of them now and saying, ha, I've made it. And then he ends his speech by saying, you never know when I just might come back because he can't let it go. He's still trying to prove to the world, I am someone. David Robinson comes to the stage. David Robinson is a man of faith, a person who loves Jesus, who has parents who have stilled that in his heart. He comes to the stage and he hardly talks about basketball. You know what he talks about? He turns, it was, it was an audience like this. He looks down right, right over in this area where his family is sitting. And he looks at his boys and says to his boys, I want you to know I love you. And I want you to know, and he speaks into those boys, value. So here's a man, both of them highly successful basketball players. Both came from very two different places. One is a very unhealthy place and the other from a very healthy place. And he's able to speak into his boys and say, this is what life is about. How we handle our children can set the course of their life, either for good or for bad. Children are so crucial. I think of Wes Stafford, who's the president of Compassion International, phenomenal organization. A number of you here support kids through Compassion International. He wrote a book, Too Small to Ignore. If you have not read this, I would highly, this is one, I don't encourage books for everyone to read all the time. This is one, I think, if you're a Christ follower, you should probably read this book. It's called Too Small to Ignore. 
why the least of these matter most. And he writes about children. He tells his own story and why children are so important. But in this book, he talks about how we in the church, okay, parents are important. He says, you know, the church needs to make kids important. But yet what he talks about, he pulls it out in this book. And I actually got a, uh, someone gave me something two weeks ago that it was actually pulled from this book. Um, but he says churches, churches who care for kids well. 15% of their budget will then go to children. 15% of their budget. He talks about how you go to most church planning seminars and you go to learn about how to do church. Seldom do you hear, let's put all of our eggs and energy into children's ministry. But the churches that really grab a heart for kids and understand that they're a real gift and a precious commodity and someone that we are called to shepherd and steward and raise well. He says churches give 15% of their budget. So as I, read, I pulled this back out this week, I was kind of looking at some of the things that he says about children. I said, well, I wonder what Bethany gives. What do you think Bethany gives to children last year? What percentage of our budget went to children? I, I'm, I almost wept when I saw this. 0.8% of our budget went to children. 0.8%. Now, I said, well, but we're trying to hire someone, so let's put that number in. If we had had this person here last year, what would have the percentage been? It brought us up to 11%. And here's how big this is to me. Do you know what? In, in my years of being a pastor, I have never heard of or read of or had anyone in my own experience, someone come bust down my door or stand up in a congregational meeting and say, why in the world are you not giving more money to kids? But you know what I have heard? No, wait a minute. What are you doing with the missions budget? I mean, you already give 20% of your budget to missions, but hey, I mean, what's going on with the missions budget? Because why is that? We get so worked up at times over the money that impacts us, but we forget about the children. Now, I think some of this is, I want to applaud Bethany, because some of this is because we have great volunteers. But you know, it's interesting. If I'd have Donna Snader who runs our girls club on Wednesday night or Leroy Martin, who runs our boys club on Wednesday night or D who had worked with our Sunday school program for years. And now it's uh, been handed over to hope Gatto or Kim Pierce, who looks for volunteers for our children's church happening right now at this very hour. And I brought them on this stage and I said, guys, tell me how easy it is to find volunteers in your ministry. Do you know what they'll tell me? All of them. It's not easy. It is one of the hardest ministries to get volunteers for. The hardest ministry to get volunteers for. But yet we as a church say we value kids. Now, I think we have some great volunteers here. One of the things I've always believed is when it comes to church ministry, you put your money into people. When it comes, do I build a building or do I hire staff? I prefer always to hire staff. Do I pave a parking lot or do I hire staff? I prefer to hire staff because people do ministry. People impart life into other people. Buildings don't. But buildings are necessary. I'm glad we have a nice building. Very thankful for that. And it's a balance. I understand that. But people. And I think we have some phenomenal people in our ministry. I think that's why we get away with budgeting as little as we do. Because we have some people who know what it means to build a relationship in children's lives. But children are crucial. And I challenge us. (laughs) I would challenge us. To really think through this, two-thirds of Christians, if you're here this morning, you're at my, I'm going to do this. If you're here this morning, you say, I know Jesus Christ. If you had some kind of experience with Jesus where you came to know Jesus before the age of 18, would you just put your hand up? Before the age of 18. Just look around. The, everyone keep their hand up. Look around the room. If it was before the age of 12, put your hand up or leave your hand up. Look around the room. This is true no matter what church you go into. Thank you. It's amazing. Children are precious and valuable. Think of 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled. and I heard that. Did I hear that over there? That was awesome. Who was that? Cooper. Way to go, buddy. Did everyone hear that? Cooper just roared like a lion. All right. That's what I like. (laughs) 
Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is Satan's scheme. Satan is on a prowl and he's looking for people to destroy. John chapter 10, 10, it's Jesus says of himself, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give life and life to the full. Satan is looking for people to absolutely and totally destroy. Now, I don't know a lot about lions, but I've watched the Discovery Channel enough and I've gone to Disney's epic nature movies and all that stuff. We take our kids every year on Earth Day to to the theater and go watch those magnificent movies. This last year was called, I think, African Cats and watch the story of these cats. What I've learned through these shows as I watch, what kind of animal does a lion go after? A healthy group of African cats, whether it be a lion, cheetahs, they don't go after the strongest, biggest, fastest animal. Who do they attack? Who do they devour? Who do they eat? The weakest. Satan's no different. Satan is no different. A lot of people have this perception that Satan's running around looking for the strong spiritual leaders to take down. No, I don't think so. He's in that game. I have no doubt about that. But I think what he's really doing on a regular, consistent basis is taking out the weakest. The children are our weakest among us. And he's taking them out. And it pains my heart to watch it happen. I firmly believe there's an invisible invisible battle raging over children. Look at our country today. It is strange for my kids to go to public school and meet the majority of their class who have parents who live together happily in their home. Children are vulnerable and being destroyed all around us. And I want to challenge us as a church to step to the plate and take this on. We can choose to make children a priority in our lives, in our lives, thus enabling them for this battle, or we can abandon them, leaving them vulnerable and ready to be devoured. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, lived in 1900, early, early part of the 19th, or, uh, 20th century, lived in Chicago. He came home from evangelistic rally. Uh, West Stafford talk, tells a story in this book. He comes home from this evangelistic rally. His wife is already going to bed. So he crawls under the covers and his wife looks over at him. which wasn't quite yet asleep. And she says, so how'd it go tonight? He says, well, we had two and a half converts. Two and a half people came to know Jesus, born again. So his wife looks back at him and says, wow, how old was the child? D.L. Moody looks back and says, no, it was actually two children and an adult. Adults have already lived half their life. Children have the whole thing yet to go, is what he said to his wife. Wes Stafford says in his book, he actually has this quote. I love it. I want to share it. Jesus never admonished children to become more grown-up. Never. But he did, however, exhort grown-ups to become more like children. Think about that. Children are precious. They're worth fighting for. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, when Jesus comes up to, to his public ministry... The very first message he preaches, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, reads from chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and he says, I am here for the poor, the oppressed, the prisoner, and the blind. My personal opinion is we are allowing too many kids to be abused, and there are some of you sitting here who have been the result of that. So the question becomes this. Kids are so valuable. People are valuable. What do we do? What do we do? How do we fight this battle? How do we get in the game? How do we help those who have suffered immensely, who don't know they're valuable, don't know they're, they're anything but ordinary? First thing I'd say to every one of us is stand up. I'm going to use this phrase. Get your head out of the sand. I mean this with all passion of my heart. There is abuse happening all around you and me. Tomorrow, I challenge you, put your radar up, go to work tomorrow and just listen for how many people are made fun of. Listen to how much gossip you hear, how much slander. Hang out with parents and look at some of the questionable practices you see at times. Well, no, wait a minute. That would look awful angry in that discipline there publicly. Chris and I went and sat with our chief of police here in East Earl a year ago to deal with the situation that we were responding to here as a church and trying to figure out what are our legal obligations to report, not to report, how do we handle this particular situation. We go and sit with his chief of police, and you know what he says to us? 
He's from Kennett Square, down north the Philly direction. He lived there for, and worked there in the police department for over 30 years. Do you know what he said to us about coming to East Earl? He sees more sex crime in one year in East Earl than he saw in all 30 years in Kennett Square. I'd say get our heads out of the sand. It is all around us. Go hang out with the Cross Connection kids and listen to their stories. Talk to some of you here in this room who are sitting silent because of the pain of abuse where you just don't want to stand up and talk. But just listen and look. It is happening all around us. From small, simple office jokes to full-blown physical abuse, it is happening all around us. And my encouragement to everyone is to stand up, see it, and take it on. Second thing I'd say is this to all of us before I talk to those of you who are abused because I want to give you guys hope as well. Build up. Not only stand up, but I'd say build up. And the verse that I'd encourage you to add to your memory bank is this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So the speech that comes from my mouth, what should it be used for? What does that verse say? Really look at that. Let no unwholesome talk. Now, some would talk about no unwholesome talk. Well, that's swear words. That's No, it's so much more than that. At times, I think there's nothing more appropriate than letting one fly to someone because there's really sometimes no other way to describe something than a word that you know is inappropriate. It's not just talking about the black and white words I say, but it's talking about how, as I speak, am I helping to build other people up? According to their needs, not my needs, their needs. What do they specifically need? I came across a really cool definition this week for irony and sarcasm, which I am guilty of often. Often we speak with sarcasm towards other people. Pastor Mark Driscoll in Seattle, I'm reading a book of his right now, and he has in the, just kind of cool how it happened to pop up this week. He talks about it. He says, sarcasm is violence done through comedy and we often use it sarcasm violence done through comedy i am violently taking someone on with funny words and it hurts and it's not applicable to ephesians 4:29 the final thing i'd say before i speak to those of you who have been abused and are hurting is this one this is the biggest one affirm the image of god in other people The verse I'd add here is James chapter three. James chapter three talks about the tongue and it's, it's, it's how it is powerful. James chapter three, verse nine. Then he goes on to say this with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. The verse goes on to say in verse 10 and on, it says, you cannot Fresh water and salt water cannot come from the same spring. You want to tell me, James says, that you praise God, but yet you rip people apart. People are made in the likeness and image of God, but you tear them apart. With this, I want to read to you. I don't often do this because it can get, it can be the death of a message when you read a long passage from a book. But I want to read, it's, it's an essay that I actually, a few weeks ago in my message, I gave you the web address to find it for free to download. Um, but it's from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who died the same day John F. Kennedy did. Same day John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, C.S. Lewis passed away over in England. The only author since his death still sells a million copies a year. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia that are now been turned into movies by Disney. But he writes this. He's talking about the image of God in people's lives and how we need to view people, understanding when I look at every single human being, I need to see then the words he uses as a god or a goddess. Listen to what he says. This is, I'm going to try and read it in a way that hopefully you don't fall asleep on. He says, meanwhile, the cross comes before us, the crown... And tomorrow is Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I have been indulging. He's referring to everything he's been talking about. This is the summation of his essay. He says, I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. But it is hardly possible for him to think too much or too deeply about that of his neighbor. 
The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Is that what he's saying? He says, when you look at every single human being alive and look at the people all around you, Those people one day are either going to be a creature that when they reach their ultimate fulfillment in heaven, you would be tempted to worship if you saw them right now. Or they're going to be such horrible atrocity of a place called hell that you would be frightened to death of them. So he says, view people like this. And he goes on to say this. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the all and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal in your life. Think about that. Then he goes on to say this as he wraps it up. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Think about that. Whether the person sitting beside you, in front of you, or behind you knows Jesus or not, the truth is they are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God. Yes, it may be marred because they may not be in a relationship with Jesus. Yes, it may be marred because sin is so evident and prevalent even after I know Jesus. But the person, all the people all around you are created in the image of God and they are not an ordinary person. And when we can see and understand this, I love Paul David Tripp and Tim Lane. Uh, Chris took a class this past year from um, Tim Lane down in Philadelphia, and he brought back some things that he passed on to me that I've read and I've really enjoyed. And one of the things that they say is this. If I am not affirming the glory of God in the way he made you, including the ways that you are different from me, I will be frustrated with you and will be tempted to remake you in some way, namely in my image. It's crucial that we can look at people and say, I see the glory of God. I see God's image stamped all throughout humanity. That we look at people. And now, if you're here this morning and you say, what if I've been on the receiving end of abuse? Or what if I am currently on the receiving end of abuse? What do I do? Great question. I want to try and talk practically on this the best I can. First thing I'd mention is before even um, Carol Muster. I know Carol is in here. Let me find her. Where is Carol? There she is. Carol, do you mind just, I know you're going to be entirely embarrassed. Could you just stand up for a quick second? Everyone see Carol? Thank you, Carol. Sorry to embarrass you. Carol has been leading a team, um, spearheaded this team for Safe Church, helping us be aware as a church to really make sure we have things in place uh, for child safety. And this team that they're doing, they're with an organization that's consulting with us. And that organization is putting on a retreat on October 29th. It's a retreat to, to lift and empower adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse to become leaders in our church environment. Carol, share with me that today, if you would still like to get in on this retreat, if you're sitting here this morning, so you know what, I have been abused. I want to be a part of that, the place to go to find hope and healing, begin to talk about this. And then how only can I begin to talk about it, but how can God use me to help rescue others? Please see Carol today to register for that. She already has a couple from our church. I've had another person say to me, well, what if I have been abused, but I wasn't sexually abused? Could I still go to this? I asked Carol that question and she said, still talk to her. And the possibility is, yeah, that might be a good retreat for you to attend. So what do you do? If I'm on the receiving end of abuse, first thing I'd say is this. Please, from the bottom of my heart, know that you're not alone. I don't know why when we're picked on and made fun of, we think that we're alone. Every single person, including myself, has something that we would like to change about ourselves. For me, I've got this big, fat, round head. I would kill to change my big, fat, round head. That's why I grow a goatee. Some of you have wondered. I'll just tell you. I grow a goatee because I've got a big fat round. I've tried a beard. It just makes it look all the fatter. It's huge. 
I got these little wrinkles under here when I fold my neck. Tiny things look like a little bulldog. All this little crease comes back here. And I, even, even when I've been at my lightest, I still have it. It's just, I, I don't know what to do. I have these little jowls, these fat cheeks that I just can't get away from. Every single one of us in this room, you're not alone. If you've been made fun of something or you really hate something about yourself that's been pointed out by someone in your life that should be caring for you, chances are that person is pointed out because they're insecure about their own stuff. You're not alone. Please hear that you're not alone. There are others sitting in this room who are equally hurting and struggling and in pain. And for some reason, everything I read about people who have been abused, they pull into this, I'm alone, it's the whole world against me. There are people out there that are for you, that are walking with you. Second thing I'd say is this, please hear this one. I used to love to tell our kids in Mifflin County this, it is not your fault. Children who come out of divorced homes often fault themselves for their parents' divorce. And when I look at kids that tell me that, you know what I say to them? Your parents are adults. Let them take care of themselves. It is their problem that they can't get along, not yours. You're not alone. If you've been abused, if you've been neglected, if you've been abandoned, it's not your fault. No human being, no human being should abuse you, make fun of you, period. I don't care what you have done or what you think you have done. It's not your fault. And it's inappropriate that they do it. Which leads me to say this, I want to empower you. Don't put up with it. People who are abused sexually, physically, I I, I hear this all the time. They, They go into this closet of darkness and shame. And I understand that. I understand that deeply. But I would say that shame is there. Jesus died for your sins and for the sins done to you. Come out into the light. Don't stand up for it. And the final thing I'd say is reach out for help. Expect those in authority step out and expect them to do something. Matter of fact, ask them to do something. We live in a country that has rules and has laws and has order that stops this stuff from happening. I would say here this morning, if you're in a place where you have been abused, maybe you're in a marriage where you're currently being abused. Maybe your husband or your wife asks you and forces you to do sexual things that are inappropriate that you just find shameful and disgusting. Maybe you are being hit and slapped around and thrown up against walls. Maybe you are verbally just being torn apart in your home. Come to authority. Myself, Chris, a boss you work with, someone that you know cares and say, you know what? This is what's going on. And not only just tell them, but then say, what can you do about it? What can we do about it? And then expect them to do something. I use a real simple one, the bus. One of the scariest things for me as a dad is to put our kids on this thing called the bus to the public school system. Some of that is is because I grew up going on the bus. And I'll never forget when I was in sixth grade and I went to a private school at this point. So these, I ride the bus to the public school because this big, huge, towering football player comes and sits down next to me. He looks over at my little self and he says to me, Oh, you're one of those Christian kids, aren't you? And this is towards the back of the bus. And I'm kind of, yeah, I say to him, he goes, you know what I do with Christian little boys? You don't want to know. He was his real menacing voice. We sacrifice little boys like you. Now, I'm in sixth grade. I know nothing about the big bad world. And I'm like wanting to tinkle in my pants right there and just get off that bus. But in all seriousness, I've seen sexual acts take place in the back seats of the bus. I've seen drugs done on the bus. So well, it's scary for me to put my kids in the bus. And when I hear things from my kids, when they say things to me about the bus, you know what Tanya and I do? We fight. We live in a country where we can do this. We go to the bus driver. Hey, what's going on? If the bus driver doesn't give us satisfaction, we go to the principal. And we say, get that kid out of my kid's seat. And we tell them what we want to have done. And guess what? They do it. And if they don't, we can continue to make noise. That is healthy and it is good. So reach out for help. If you're being abused or you're being abandoned, you've been neglected and say, will you help me? And what will you do for me? I empower you to do that. Come to me. Chris is sitting down here. Gerald, one of our elders is right. Come up after the service and say, hey, I want to talk. I know one's going to come see me now because you're all going to think that everyone thinks I'm being abused, right? (laughs) Here's the final one I'll share. Forgive. Forgive. 
It is crucial that I learn to forgive. Forgiveness, oftentimes people miss this. It's more about me than it is for the other people. When I harbor bitterness and anger in my heart towards someone that's wronged me, it destroys my life. Now, I want to correct some misapplied thoughts on this one. We're going to do a whole series coming up leading to Christmas about relationships. Because what do you do in the holidays? You get together with people that you don't always like. So we're going to talk during the holidays. Our, our messages leading to the holidays are how to live with people we don't like. So we're going to talk about this concept. But here's one of the verse. Mark 11:25 says this. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, anyone... Okay? If you hold anything against any of you've been hurt, if there's any kind of thing in your heart that you're really ticked at someone else, hurt from someone else, forgive him or her so that your father in heaven may what? If I do not forgive other people, the Bible tells me repeatedly, God does not forgive me, period. Now, here's the thing that's important. This is standing in prayer. Uh, maybe in my quiet time in the morning when I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and something pops in my head and I think, boy, yeah, that really did hurt. He says, forgive them. I want to read another verse that you have to, keep in con- that have to keep in mind with this one. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 to 4. If your brother sins, what's it say? Rebuke him. And if he repents, don't miss this. If he repents, what's it say? If he repents. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, what's it say? This is crucial. You understand, when I talk about forgiveness, I am not talking about, I've, I've had young people sit with me and say, my father has sexually abused me. So you're telling me to forgive him means I need to go back and hug him and live in the same house with him? I say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible teaches in your case. Has your father repented? Yes or no? No, he hasn't. Then you don't belong back in his house. Now, wait a minute. I'm told to forgive. Mark. Mark says that. You're right. Vertically before God, if you hold harbor bitterness in your heart towards your father, God can't forgive you. So here's, why, here's, how, I, here's how I kind of flush, flush this one out. Before God, and this has been very personal to Tanya and I. Tanya, some of you have heard her story shared in private settings. Tanya grew up in an abused, abusive relationship with her mother. Ugly stuff. In fact, one of the stories that she shared, we wrestled with how to share this because the reality is this message is taped and her mother could listen to this and I understand that and we've worked through this. One of the stories that Tanya would share is her mother would get on Tanya's, get down on Tanya's chest like this and punch and beat. Completely and totally inappropriate parenting. And it's called abuse. Now this relationship continued for years and even after we got married, it continued Sure, the physical stuff stopped, but the venom and the horrible stuff continues to be spewed out at us. So finally, we're wrestling with what do we do? Everyone says, just forgive her, just forgive her. We start to have kids. So what do we do with our kids? Do we put our kids, do we allow our kids? I mean, because she's dangerous. What do we do with our children? Can our children stay in her home? I mean, what, what do we do? And we wrestled immensely with this. And finally, we come to the realization is, you know what? She's not repentant. She said to Tanya, these words, it still blew me away. We sat with her one time to confront this. And she says, you're right. I did that, but you don't know what kind of child you were. Came right out of her mouth. So Tanya's a strong-willed child. Yeah, right. Tanya's strong-willed. Those of you who know her, I'm her husband. I will attest to that. She's strong-willed. I love her to death. But a strong-willed child does not mean I hit him harder or hit him more or hit him at all. That is sick and it's disgusting. And she would not repent, would not turn, would not even acknowledge that she had done it. Well, she did acknowledge it, but then was proud of it. And I say, you know what? I have no business to reconcile. It's different from just, so here's where I've wrestled with. Every single day, I must, before God, be forgiving towards her. Every single day. And I'll tell you, this is tough for me as a husband now to protect my wife. I want to just take her on some days. But the reality is before God, Mark says... We just looked at the verse. I need to, before God, say, God, do I want ill for her or do I truly want to bless her? I must ask myself that. And if I come to the fact that I want ill for her before God, I am not forgiving her in my heart before God, period. 
And it is wrong and God will not forgive me. Every single day I wrestle with this. Not every day, but many days in my quiet time, I wrestle with this thought. Who is it that I need to forgive? And she pops in my mind often. But that does not mean that I just walk back into that relationship and say, oh, isn't life great? God puts these play things in. Matthew 18 is there for a reason. Matthew 18, again, says what happens after you confront someone, if they don't own it, if they don't repent, it says treat them like they don't know Jesus. This is, I'm passionate about this because I've heard far too, I've heard a pastor counsel a wife who was being sexually abused in a marriage relationship. I've heard a pastor counsel that wife, well, your body is not your own. Forgive him and move back in with him. No, I'm so passionate about this. If you're being abused, step out. Yes, you must forgive and you will destroy your life if you don't. But it doesn't mean that you guys just walk on and hunky-dory and hug on that person that's abused you. Now, we're going to talk more about this coming in our, in our series in December. So hang tight with some questions. If you've got some burning questions in the meantime, I am all ears and I would love to chat and wrestle with this one with you. But I want to end with this story. It's one of my favorite stories. I've used this story many a times in my leadership, many a times. It's a story of a young boy. It's supposedly a true story. By this point, I've told it so many times. I'm sure I got all these facts all mixed up. But I was told it's a story of a sixth grade math class. A sixth grade math class. A kid that comes in. He's made fun of and picked on all the time. A junior high boy. The math teacher's got a real heart for this young man. He can see the abuse that he's undertaken. And so the, the teacher decides, I need to do something about this. So one day, the teacher comes into class and hands out sheets of paper to everyone in the class. And on the top of the sheet of paper was their name written. That's all it was on it. And then she instructed them to pass the paper around the classroom until it went to every single person. And at each person, they were supposed to write down. So I get the paper. And on that paper, I see Gerald's name. I am to write down two character traits that I love about Gerald. Two things. He, she forced everyone in class to be positive and to build up and to encourage. So it was done. She then collected all these papers and typed them up and put them on these neat little cards and handed them out to each student. Time goes on. This sixth grader is now off in the military. She does not fully aware of this, but the sixth grader is in active service and he is killed serving our country. So she decides to go to the funeral because of remembrance of this, this boy and his life that he lived. So she gets to the funeral, and as the funeral's wrapping up and everyone's kind of leaving, a, a girl, which ended up being his sister, comes up to her and says, are you Mrs.? Calls out her name and says, yes, I am. I need you to have this. And she pulls out this card that by this point looks like it has been through the washing machine and been crumpled up and wrinkled up and everything else, and hands this card to her and says, you impacted my brother's life in a way that you will never know and understand. By simply helping him see that he had value. And she says, I want you to know my brother has kept this on his person. This was found on him when he was found in active duty killed. This was on him. Powerful story. So what I've done often, I think in every leadership context I've been in, I've already done it with our elders. I've put their names on top and passed around. It's like guys tell every, forcing people to do this because we don't do so good at it, do we? I mean, we see wrong in my spouse and my spouse will see wrong in me or I work with Chris. I'll see wrong with Chris quick. He'll see wrong with me quick. And we're always on this rampage to clean that stuff up. How often do we just force ourselves to look at them in the eye and say, this is what I love about you. And I want to affirm the image of God in your life and speak life into you. Why does it take a silly exercise to do that? So as I close this in prayer and we think of Moses' life, he's born into a horrendous situation, but he had parents who said, you are no ordinary child because life is precious. You are precious. I love you. I care for you. And we are going to instill into your heart. My prayer is that us as a church, we as a church, we would take life on like that, that we would speak life into other humans, especially children, that we would equip parents to do that well. And that this would be a church where if you are abused, you can find safety and you can find leadership that will stand with you and help it stop and protect you. Let's honor the image of God in those around us. 
as we close in prayer, I want you to do right now, I just want to do this little exercise. Look at the people around you. Like, truly look at them. It's okay. I know some of you are like, really? Stare them in the eyes. Look at the guy in front of you, the, the, the bald spot he has back there. I mean, take notice of it. Hopefully it's not a female. I know there are some there, but just take note. Really look at the people around you. I mean, take it in. Those people that you look at are created in the image of God. One of the most glorious things you will ever come in contact with on this earth. May we leave here and treat that image beautifully. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for the story of Moses. I thank you for uh, the, just his parents born into a horrible environment, slavery and abuse and, and just terrible things that are being done from one human to another. How that must have grieved your heart as you looked down there and saw people mistreated and being beaten and slapped so far from what you've created this world and people to be and to do. But God, Moses' parents come along and in the midst of that horrible oppression, they don't cave in, they don't give in, they don't allow their hearts to become bitter. Instead, they have this beautiful child that they have. They look down and say, this is a gift from God and we will instill in this little boy's heart the fact that he is not ordinary. God, I pray for parents in this room right now. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would empower them to walk out of here with a fresh vision and a heart for their little precious children and that they would go home when they lay them down to bed tonight. They can look and pray over that little boy or that little girl and say, God, thank you for this gift. And may I, as a parent, put into their lives life and not condemnation and death. God, I pray for people here this morning that have been abused, maybe are being abused. God, would they, would they, oh God, impress upon their heart that they are fearfully and wonderfully made? That you have not abandoned them, that no matter where they are, you are with them, that you are crying out for them. God, I pray that you would help them to be brave and they'd be bold and they'd come and get help. Maybe reach out to Chris, myself, one of our elders, or a teacher at school, or a guidance counselor, or their boss at work. Would they just reach out and when they say, hey, this sexual harassment at work, I mean, I need you to know this just, I'm, I'm dying under it. Or, or man, my, my spouse continues to put me up against a wall or, or you know what? I just, I'm just being made fun of all the time. God, would you comfort their hearts? Would, you, would they know that you are real and alive and active? And would you empower them to step up and to reach out for help? God, for the rest of us in this room, who don't live in that environment, maybe day in and day out. Would you empower us to stand up for them? Help us to leave here to be bold and courageous. And when we hear people being made fun of tomorrow, God, would you, would you help us just to put words in our mouth to silence it? When we hear the gossip and the slander and, and when we see things that we are like, no, wait a minute. That, God, would you encourage us to help us to stand up? And may we speak. Ephesians 4.29, may words come out of our mouth, may it be to build others up, to strengthen and make the image of God beautiful in their lives. God, thank you for being real and active and alive. And may you continue to do your work in me and each one of us. But thank you for Jesus who's come to this earth to restore that image and make it beautiful. And my prayer is that every one of us in this room would embrace Jesus Christ because without him, that image, even though it is an image of God, will spend an eternity apart from you in a place called hell. Your heart is for us. You've sent us Jesus, so help us to embrace him this morning. It's in his name we pray, amen.